0: For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome.
1: Well, I hope you'll keep your Bibles open with me there to Romans chapter 1 as we continue our sermon series there, the gospel in Romans, the power of God for salvation. And I have to tell you that uh, this morning there is a great encouragement that's in this passage for us, but it's a great encouragement that's very tangible. Uh, that's, that's right here in, in this room. It, it's an encouragement about the, the gathering that is the body together in Christ through faith. Uh, and this is what we are. This is what we are. We're, we're here not because we met each other and said, hey, why don't we get together Sunday? Does 10 o'clock work for you? We can hang out and listen to a guy talk too long. Uh, it'll be a lot of fun. Um, no, we're, we're here. We're gathered in the name of the Lord. That's what makes us together. We're gathered, not because I have something to say. I'll be honest, I don't. I found something that is worth reflecting on. I found something that is worth sharing, something that you and I share together, that we might be mutually encouraged together in this gospel. Uh, we are a, a living example together to this day, 2,000 years later, of what is being written about in our passage this morning in Romans. How sweet. And so it's appropriate that the prayer that we have for this series is that over these coming years as we work our way through Romans, during the course of the spring little section of our sermon series each year, that God would build for us a foundation for our faith that would carry us on into these years ahead, that we would have a foothold in the solid rock, which is Christ, Christ that makes us together. This morning... Uh, We finish our time in this beginning, this introduction to the letter uh, of Romans, that Paul is is extending a a sort of extended greeting as he expresses both thanksgiving to God as well as his intention to come to visit the church in person. Now, the question that uh, Paul answers for us in this section is the question of why does he intend to visit them? Is it just that he's sort of on a tour of the churches? Uh, like we might sign up to go on a pilgrimage through what is now modern-day Turkey and Asia Minor and then across into Greece and then over to Rome just to visit the churches and the areas that would be there. No, his goal is very specific. He tells us that his goal is that he would reap some harvest of faith among the church, that the church would be strengthened and that the Lord would be glorified as the church is mutually encouraged together. Now, here's the cool part. We can pray the same thing. We can hope in. We can have as a goal the same thing together. So let's pray to that end. Heavenly Father, we begin our time in thanksgiving. First, we give thanks for a faith that has been made known, that's, that's observable. It's, it's actually been seen among one another, and even in the places to which we've gone and from which we come. Lord, we thank you for faith. We thank you for fashioning a people of faith. This is your work, not ours. We give you thanks. And Lord, our hope in gathering together this morning is that you would impart some spiritual gift. The Holy Spirit would work in a way that we say, "Man, that's the Spirit's blessing, his very presence among the people, and that we would be mutually encouraged together by our time in your Word and the work of your Spirit among the church, for your glory, your grace would be known, that we would respond with faith, with itself as evidence that the Spirit has worked. Lord, we we expect these things. We are eager to see these things take place in the midst of the congregation this morning because this is your revealed will. This is your purpose for your church. And so we join you in an eagerness for what you would do. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, amen. This passage begins, if you're following along with me, I hope you are. You can see verse 8 begins with the word first. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. That's so important and instructive for us. First, thanksgiving. That's profound. So important. You might be here today because you have a need. You have some uh, difficulty, some suffering, perhaps some opportunity, you're looking for guidance, you're looking for application, you're looking for something that might bring change in your life or maybe in the change of others. Lots of things that are worthy pursuits, worthy questions, worthy goals. But first, first, I thank my God. Thanksgiving is first. It's, a, it's our weekly application point over and over ag- again in our time in the Word. First, Thanksgiving. How many times have you heard me, at the end of a time of reflection in the Word, say, really, all I can say is it seems to me that the application of this text is we ought to respond with worship. The Lord is great. The Lord is mighty. The Lord's grace is sure. It's full and thick and addresses the reality of need. It's like He's seen us, and He's seen what we need, and He's addressed it with His grace. The response is is faith that becomes worship. This is the first Application point, thanksgiving. So I would ask you, how often is thanksgiving the theme of your prayer? How often is thanksgiving the orientation of your heart? Now, if you hear that, you probably heard condemnation. And so let's get Mark back up here. He'll read a psalm and then lead us again in the prayer of confession, right? (laughs) I mean, how often How often is your theme Thanksgiving? Well, maybe we should ask your household. Maybe we should ask your parents. Maybe we should ask your kids, right? And see how that goes. Well, what if Thanksgiving is not your theme? Let me suggest to you that, wow, that, that does leave us guilty. I mean, the first application point of grace received with faith is that we would respond in Thanksgiving. And if we don't, then we're guilty of not really walking in faith. But let me suggest to you that the first application point for a fixing of our Thanksgiving problem is not to do more Thanksgiving. Now, I do pray that that is the result, but perhaps what is needed is not better words on your lips and not better, uh, in, a better Thanksgiving phrases in your prayer, but rather what you need isn't a better mouth, but better eyes. Better eyes to see and remember what the Lord has done. I mean, think about it. How can you be actually thankful? I mean, you can say thanks words, but how can you be actually thankful if you haven't seen what is great, what is glorious, what is good, what is grace to you that you might give thanks? Friends, you know, we call this our celebration service or a worship service. The orientation of the service itself is an orientation to thanksgiving. It's where we're going in our services. We're going to thanksgiving. But let's remember that more fully understood, this is a service of celebration and remembering. It's a service of celebration and remembering. That means that while our orientation, our goal is to give thanks, we know that's not the orientation of our actual heart. So our heart has to remember the ground of the gospel that we might give thanks for the great fruit of the gospel. Let me suggest the, the first fruit of the gospel is faith at all. The first application of the gospel is that the Holy Spirit invades our hearts to give the gift of faith that we can receive, that we can respond with thanksgiving. So our labor is to remember Our labor is to remember Christ and his gospel. And thanksgiving will be the response to one who sees just exactly what it is that you've been given. So if the Spirit would grant us to see grace according to the word of Christ, surely he'll also grant faith to respond with worship. Thanksgiving is the response of faith to grace received by faith. Let's look at why Paul himself gives Thanks. We're only a couple words in, after all. Look at verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Well, what about them? Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Thanksgiving is Paul's response to the presence of faith in the church of Rome. But notice, he doesn't give thanks to them. He gives thanks to God for them, and specifically what about them, that their faith is well known in all the world. Why? Why does faith in the presence of a church cause Paul to become a worshiper of God? Let me suggest to you that it is because faith is evidence of grace, and grace is a gift from God. The, the, very, the very existence of faith in a people is evidence that God has given blessing. Faith is not evidence that a believer is great. It really isn't a coherent statement to say, look how great is that man's faith. I want to achieve the greatness of faith like that. Look how Amazing. Let me suggest to you, if you're sitting on a chair made out of toothpicks, I don't care how much faith you have, how great is your faith that that chair is going to hold you up, it's not going to. You're going to end up lying on the ground because faith is only as great as the object of your faith. See, faith isn't great. Faith just acknowledges reality. Faith is, is you with your eyes open to the reality of the greatness of grace. That's why, why all things are from, through, and to Christ. And, and, and faith is sort of a pathway that, that links us to the to the reality of the greatness of grace. To have faith in, in that which is weak isn't faith, it's foolishness. And Paul himself actually goes at that in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, for if the dead are, are not raised. Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. So you could be a man, a woman of great faith in a Christ. But if he's not raised, he has not done the great deed of resurrection that we celebrate in just a week from now, and even this morning. If he hasn't done this great thing, then our faith is futile. You're not a man of great faith. You're a fool. But if he is great, if his grace has accomplished much, then he is worthy. So our faith is evidence of the presence of a great grace. Faith is not to the praise of the believer. Faith is for our good, but it's to the praise of God's glorious grace. So Paul and the church they're, they're together in faith. And Paul's response to seeing their faith is to worship the Lord. Lord, I give you thanks for the faith that is present because that faith points to and clings to the glory of your grace. This church and Paul are together in their dependence. Faith is nothing more than a dependence, an acknowledgement, a leaning on Grace as a gift from God alone. I went hunting for a a statement from the creeds and catechisms that would hold this for us. And lo and behold, we find in the Heidelberg Catechism, question 55. It's just said beautifully. It's basically a summary of our passage this morning. Listen to the Heidelberg Catechism. What do you understand by the communion of saints? All right? First, that believers, one and all, personally and individually, and as a body together, as members of Christ the Lord, have communion with Him, and share in all His treasures and gifts. Pause there. Do you hear it? What is our communion? What is our oneness? What is our fellowship? Is it with one another? No. It's actually not. It's not even that which Paul is giving thanks for. It's not not what fills him with joy. It's not his great hope. It's not his aim or goal in the passage either. Our communion, our fellowship is with Christ. As members of Christ the Lord, we have communion with him and share in all his treasures and gifts, grace. So faith is evidence that we share in Christ But we do have that we in there, don't we? We, we together share in Christ. And there is our fellowship. It is a fellowship that we have in Christ and therefore we have in one another. Friends, there are are a pile of implications from this. Let's go to the second thing that the Heidelberg Catechism tells us. It tells us that each member should, first implication, consider it a duty to use these gifts readily and joyfully for the service and enrichment of other members. And one of the first implications is that people who participate together in Christ, who receive great blessings and benefits from His Spirit and His Word, are to share those benefits with one another. So That's where that word mutual encouragement comes up later in the passage. You see, faith says that Jesus is good. As we th- see throughout Romans, faith confesses that I am not good. I mean, it's just the first confession of faith, that I am a person in need. I am the dependent one. He is the grace giver. I am a sinner in need of grace, but the Lord is good and righteous, and his mercy has made provision for the forgiveness of sins. The appropriate response to the presence of faith in the church is thanksgiving. It's worship and song. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. We've referenced this over and over again in recent weeks. It says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Rather, our boast, of course, is in the Lord and His grace. The Lord is the one who is good. Faith clings to grace that says that the Lord alone is good, and we're bound together in this one faith as we cling together in Christ. Let me suggest that a robust view of grace, that is, that is our prayerful concern in our time in Romans, will create a beautiful and robust community. But if our sermon series was a sermon series on let us create community together, we'd fail. (laughs) Because grace is the foundation and all of the power and gift that creates a community of faith together. Faith, grace, that you're united to by faith, is the ground of a profound community of thanksgiving. And this community is heard of all over the world. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to just real quickly take a peek at the rest of our passage together. We're going to just sort of look at the outline and then go to a couple implications. But we can't pass over and don't forget that the main idea, the first thing, is thanksgiving. Paul says in verse 9, for God is my witness, whom I serve with all my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you in my prayers. If you walk through the passage outline, he begins with this phrase, for God is my witness. Paul's emphasis here is striking. It's almost concerning. Really? Is he really laying out a curse, like, I'm sorry, an oath? For God is my witness, this is true. Are you allowed to do that? Paul is so emphatic about his desire later that he calls his obligation to visit that we conclude that this is the central purpose of Paul's writing of this letter. Right? He's so emphatic. God is my witness. I've been praying to come to you, and now I'm writing a letter to convince you. I, I do want to be there and participate in ministry among you. We can't forget that that is a central theme and purpose of Paul's writing of this letter, or else we'll kind of get off track and, and turn this into a systematic theology or something. It's not. It, it's a letter, a letter with a specific purpose by which we discover beautiful theology. Now, Paul writes this letter to the Church of Rome precisely because he's been, up to this point, unable to visit them. So this letter would stand in as a spiritual gift until he is able to come to them to impart, he says, some spiritual gift. Now, is it not perhaps possible that one of the reasons why the Lord would prevent Paul from visiting Rome, when that's so clearly that the design that the, and the desire that the Lord has placed on Paul's heart, that perhaps the Lord has prevented Paul's visiting Rome so that you and I could receive a great spiritual gift from this most magnificent letter. Imagine if he'd gone ahead and gone. Imagine if he'd gotten there quickly. We might not have this beautiful letter. Paul didn't know that. The Lord knows, and he works according to his providence, his providential, his hidden will, even as he's revealed to Paul this great desire to go, for which Paul cries out, I thank God for his providence, that the spiritual gift of strength and mutual encouragement came not only to Rome, but now down through the centuries to you and me, sitting here in Brevard County, receiving this great spiritual gift. He says in verse 9, I mention you always in my prayers. He's already said that thanksgiving to God is the first concern, and now he mentions a prayer request. So he moves on from thanksgiving to specific requests. His request in the passage is that at last I may succeed in coming to you. What's his request? I want to come a desire to come, my request before the Lord is that according to his providence he would open up the door that I might finally succeed in coming. Paul's prayer for the church in Rome is not a generic prayer, I pray for you generally this morning, but rather a specific prayer that he might be able to come to them and share in gospel ministry. He says in verse 11, I long to see you, Paul tells us specifically what he longs for, what he's long for in verse 11. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Paul tells us specifically what he desires. He says it again, that they would be mutually encouraged, that there would be a together fellowship of ministry in Christ. And Paul's already given thanks and faith. But his hope is that that faith would be strengthened and confirmed and mutually encouraged and strengthened together. And then in verse 13, he says, I don't want you to be unaware. Well, unaware of what? Well, he doesn't want them to be unaware that he doesn't just desire to go. He doesn't just pray fervently to be able to go. But he's made great effort to come to them. But so far has been prevented. All right, So he desires something. He prays for something, and he's labored for something. But up to this point, no matter his intention, no matter his prayer, he has not yet arrived. But what does he desire? What does he so eagerly eagerly desire? Why is he pressing so hard in this direction? He says that his desire is that there would be fruitful ministry, that there would be a harvest that is brought in as he comes to them. That is, that there would be a nourishment of their faith, by the proclamation of the gospel. If you recap just very quickly, you can see that Paul has made an emphatic oath regarding his sincerity. Paul makes, secondly, his prayer to finally succeed in his intended purpose to come to them. And then he makes known the goal of his ministry among them, that is, spiritual ministry, blessing, encouragement, and fruitful proclamation. So let's consider how some of these things might encourage us today. The first of which is unceasing prayer. Paul has never been to Rome. There's a church there. Now, everywhere else that we hear about there being a church is a church that actually Paul planted. Throughout the book of Acts, we just see churches being planted wherever Paul goes. He's never been to Rome and yet there's a church there. He's never seen this church and yet he has this personal attachment to them. Of course, that personal attachment is a shared faith. They have a communion together in Christ, even among a people that he's never seen before. And that shared faith produces a desire to be mutually encouraged in faith's increase with the proclamation of the gospel. So I would ask you do you have a desire for the mutual encouragement of the faith of people you've never even met before? Now, I'm looking around the room right now, and I know that very few of you have met very many of our global mission partners. Mark Sladorn just said a bunch of names, and you're like, I don't even know where some of these places He says Mongolia, like, I don't know, is that like South America, or, you know, it just sounds far away. You don't know the names, and you can't pull up the faces. But I would ask you, do you know that you have a shared fellowship you have a communion in Christ. Do you desire a fruitfulness among these global mission partners? Every week we pray for these, and it may seem redundant as we name these names and we give thanks for their faith. It's in the stories that are coming back to us. Does your mutual faith in Christ knit you together in a fabric of thanksgiving? Let me suggest to you, if that's not really true, If if when Mark or James or another begins to just sort of say these names week after week, if you're like, okay, this is the part where I wait for that part to be done, let me suggest to you that, yes, you could go, and you could could go to the website, and we have the the website address right behind me, cpcoast.com slash globalmission. You can go there. You can see their faces. But let me suggest, as valuable as that is, there's something even more profitable, and that's theological reflection. Man, I don't even have to know their names. Paul never met these people, but he knows that they are together in Christ. And so if somebody knows their names, let's mention their names before the Lord. Let's pray, Lord, increase a desire in me that there would be a fruitful harvest in these places that we name week after week. Engage my heart in a desire to be eager for gospel ministry in these places that God has given for us to share together. And then you can ask the question, have you ever considered visiting them? Could you perhaps pray, God, would would you plant a desire in me that perhaps, God, I would pray that I could go and visit them like Paul visited Rome, that I might impart to them some spiritual gift. Your spirit is in me, and I don't know what my spiritual gift is. I don't know what you might do. I don't really feel like much, but I trust you, God, that your spirit is here. And I do trust that we would be mutually encouraged together in the proclamation of the gospel as we share together? Do you desire that they would be strengthened and mutually encouraged in the faith? So I commission you first to thanksgiving and you hear news of the faith of our mission partners. Give thanks to God. Like, do it. Like, as we're praying, as those names are being said, God, thank you for the faith of the Mentons in South Africa. God, thank you for the faith of the believers in Mongolia in the children's home there God, thank you for the faith of Zach Dodd in going there. He just went there recently and returned home. You don't know who Zach Dodd is. He's the leader of, of WeGo. Go to the website and find out and shoot him a text and say, I'm so glad for fruitfulness in gospel ministry. And even more locally, let me suggest that you visit Cross Point Coast Cape. 25, 30 minutes up the road, you can go. And you can visit and you can spend time with Joel Fair and Randy there, and the church that is there, and be mutually encouraged. These are nearby brothers and sisters. Imminently possible that we could strengthen the saints together. Such practical application from this passage, right? Then, while we have Paul's prayer, we also have his eager desire, his prayerful, eager desire. Paul's longing is a gospel-centered longing, Paul doesn't need more relationships. He already knows people. He doesn't need more friends. I don't care if he's an introvert or an extrovert. It doesn't matter. He's got plenty of people to know. He's not eager for more relationships. He's not hard up for friends. What Paul wants is a gospel, Christ-centered increase in relationship. Do you? Well, I'm kind of an introvert. It doesn't matter. You have an incredible blessing. No, God, I don't want that grace gift no, I, I don't really want a family. I'm kind of an introvert. I'm, I'm okay without that sort of thing. God has a blessing for you, saint. And it is a blessing of a fellowship. Turn to him and say, God, I, I receive your gift. God knows, Paul knows that they are together in Christ. Do you believe that you are together in Christ with the saints? Do you know, believe that that's a gift? Do you believe that you share in a faith together, in a singular hope? Do you know that you share together in grace? What this passage tells us in verse 13, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. He's been prevented. The circumstance of Paul's prayer is so instructive for us. It teaches us how to pray in light of the will of God. And you know that. You know that your prayers are supposed to be in light of the will of God. But how does that work? God's will seems to be so complicated, right? Paul wants something that God has not yet provided, so he prays for it. Are you with me? This is simple. That's what we often do in prayer. Paul has reason to believe that God's will is for this thing, that he would go in ministry. That is, after all, his commission. He's been commissioned to preach the gospel among the Gentiles, and he hasn't been to Rome yet. He has reason to believe that God has willed something, and yet God has not willed something. Huh? I mean, thus far, he hasn't been prevented. And friends, when God wills something, it will be, right? We're talking about the power of God, And if God wills that that Paul's in Rome, shoot, he could be there right now, right? It's the way that God's will works, isn't it? So, how is it that God would reveal a will to Paul to be eager to go to Rome that would be a proper alignment, that he would be prayerful, intent in prayer to go to Rome, and yet, thus far, he is prevented? Here we see God's revealed, revealed will and God's providential hidden will. God has revealed to Paul that he ought to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He's been very, very clear. The mission is not complete apart from a visit to Rome, and yet when Paul presses toward Rome, he's prevented. And so Paul presses toward Rome and continues to be prevented. God's providence has prevented Paul's success in what God has clearly revealed as God's will for Paul's ministry. Therefore, what does he do? Well, God didn't open the door, right? Well, he didn't. He also didn't close his will. His will is gospel proclamation among the Gentiles. So, what does he do? I would suggest Paul does three things. First of all, he persists in prayer in alignment with what he knows of God's will. He knows that God's will is for proclamation. He knows that God's will is for him to be one who proclaims among the Gentiles. He knows that by Jesus' own commissioning when he saw the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. And so he persists in prayer according to what he knows of God's will. And then, he doesn't just persist in prayer, he also presses on in his intention to go to Rome, even as he's prevented in his success. So he presses on prayerfully, and he presses on willfully. He's exercising his will in in, in what he understands to be in alignment with God's will, even as, and this third one is so important, he eagerly waits upon the Lord. When the Lord wills in his hidden will, according to his providential time, he will not be prevented. He will succeed. and He will go. He trusts God's revealed will, and he trusts God's provision on the way. And he knows that these two will soon align, or God's mystery will yet remain hidden to him. But he knows what obedience that is birthed from faith looks like. It looks like the pursuit of gospel ministry. Let me suggest to you, this is church planting. I mean, it's real simply. What, what we are engaged in right here at Point Coast in this county and in fellowship with our mission partners, this is church planting. We know God's will is to see God's church established and multiplied. We know that. You can read the scriptures and, and see this. And yet we wait upon the Lord that it would be so with our own eye. We pray for it, right? We pray that we may succeed in the endeavor of church planting. But friends, I was never given some great revelation from above that cross point Coast would exist more than maybe five more seconds, right? I don't have that promise, but I do have the promise that the Lord is for his church. And so I'm just going to hop in behind what I know of God's will and then wait upon his providence. So we pray that we may succeed. And we press on in, in our intention to plant the gospel in Brevard County insofar as we understand God's will. And we wait upon the Lord for the time and the season and the provision of any fruitful harvest. We don't do that, whether by our prayer or by our labor, but rather we wait upon the Lord that he would bring about some fruitful harvest harvest. I would ask you, are you actively involved in this ministry? I'm not the church planter. We, together in Christ, are the church planters. The congregation, the body, are those who are planting the gospel, praying and laboring and waiting upon the Lord. Are you actively involved in this ministry? Are you engaged prayerfully for the church? for you and the church together? Are you pressing on, laboring for the strengthening of the church, our mutual encouragement together? Do you long that the gospel would be preached in our county with a great and fruitful harvest and then go home and sleep and pray tomorrow that you wake up to a fruitful harvest? Because the Lord is the one that works. What Paul is describing here is, is... a longing for a fruitful ministry, and what he can see in the near term is a mutual encouragement. A mutual encouragement. Look again at what Paul envisions for his visit in Rome. Look at verse 11. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, and then he tells us what he means by that, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I would suggest that this is not some far-out, Thing that we couldn't envision. What does it mean to bring some spiritual gift? What might that look like? Well, he tells us what it looks like, a people being mutually encouraged by one another's faith. I know what that looks like. That happens in the living rooms of the people in my community group. That happened in the, in the kitchen and the living room of some new partners that we got to fellowship with yesterday morning. That happens over and over again in the simplest, uh, most approachable settings, mutual encouragement by one another's faith. Let me suggest that Paul has already told us the nature of the spiritual gift. He did so in verses 5 and 6. He says, We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you. What's the apostles' labor that there would be an obedience of faith. He longs to see the Spirit of God bring faith which produces obedience in a transformed life. He wants to see that ball moving forward. That's what he means by mutual encouragement. When we see one another, when we are with one another, we see faith producing transformation and we're encouraged. And as we are encouraged There's a mutual encouragement that's taking place, so we press on. This, again, is so practical. When I'm traveling, I often find myself strengthened by the church in the areas to which I travel. Six years ago, this is one that sticks out of my mind. Sandy and I visited a church in Knoxville, Tennessee. We were about 45 minutes out of Knoxville, and, and we knew of an Acts 29 church in that area, and we thought, let's, let's go for a visit. After the service, we met some of the members there, and we met one of the elders, and the elders said, well, I mean, if you're in town, why don't you come back over this evening, and we'll have a meal together, and we did, and there were a bunch of other people from the church there that evening, and we, had a, a, we filled up that house with lots of noise, and lots of kids, and lots of chatter, and lots of food, And we told stories of our faith, and we received great mutual encouragement together. I would suggest we received the spiritual gift of the presence of the Holy Spirit in one another's lives in a living room in Knoxville, Tennessee. Five years ago, on our way to South Africa to visit the Menton family, we had two extra days, and we took those two extra days of layover in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates, and we visited Redeemer Church in the center of Dubai. Did you know that there is a gospel-centered church in the center of Dubai? We worship together with believers whose faith is literally proclaimed in all the world. Men and women gathered from literally just about every nation under the sun have made their way to Dubai, and they worship together, and they give thanks to the Lord. I often continue to be encouraged by the lunch that we shared with Dave Furman and another one of the elders from the church in just a nearby restaurant and we have countless stories of great encouragement and spiritual blessing as we've entered the fellowship of the saints in the many places to which we've gone. One of the greatest blessings that we have at Cross Point Coast is we're a place that people come to. I mean it's true. We're not some great world city. And yet people just keep coming to sunny Florida. And and why not come closer to the beach? And they do. And some of you are here today. Man, it's sweet. Thank you for bringing the mutual encouragement and spiritual blessing of your presence here. Find somebody to grab lunch with. Stay with us afterward. we'll, We'll have an extra sandwich for you, I'm sure. Let's encourage One another. We have you know their names. We have people from New Mexico and Iowa and Georgia and New York and Minnesota and many other places that have made Cross Point Coast a regular part of their gathering year after year when they happen to be in town. And we receive a great gift of the Spirit when the listen when the Spirit visits our fellowship. Where's the one place that God has promised to be found? In this age, he's promised to be found on the throne of heaven. That's where. And he's sitting down and reigning. And his spirit has promised to be in the life of the believer. Thank you, guests, for bringing the Holy Spirit into the midst of the body. We are encouraged by that gift. There's no no better gift than to have the presence of God in the midst of the fellowship. Finally, the passage ends with this phrase that he has an obligation of proclamation. I'm under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, verse 14, both to the wise and the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. We saw last week that Paul has been commissioned by Christ to preach the gospel among the Gentiles. What does that obligation mean? Christopher Ashe, in his uh, commentary on Romans, called Teaching Romans, very approachable, he says this, Why is Paul under obligation? The metaphor of a monetary debt doesn't capture the urgency. It's like a city being conquered by a new king who entrusts the herald the proclamation of his victory and the offer of his pardon. It's not going to level the place but rather he's going to bring them into his kingdom because this is now the extent of his kingdom. And the herald, therefore, owes it to to all the citizens to tell them urgently, if he doesn't, they'll incur the wrath of the new king by not bowing the knee to him and accepting his pardon. This urgency makes Paul eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. Do you see the obligation? He has news. He's the bearer of news. He possesses news. And the nature of the news of grace itself demands and obligates the bearer of the news to make it known. That is the nature of grace. You have an obligation as a bearer of grace to make that grace known. There's an urgency. Verse, 20, verse 14 speaks of Greeks and barbarians, wise and foolish. The world is filled with those who seek to save themselves. They do so by their education or by their common sense. But the news of the gospel is rescue. And it doesn't come from within ourselves. It's broken in by a news of a father who sent a son. Paul preaches the gospel in Rome. He's making an announcement that sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God, have have no hope of saving themselves, but can lean not on the wisdom and wealth of this world, not on their own righteousness or their prosperity, but on the good news of the death of God the Son in their place on the cross for sinners. This is the news that Paul bears. And being a bearer of that news, he has an obligation to make it known. And he has an obligation to say that Jesus is alive and he's resurrected in power and he's raised to reign over all things that all who believe would have life in him and that he would reign over all things to the glory of his name. This is the gospel that Paul is obligated and eager to preach in Rome. Now there's something fascinating in this. It blows me over and encourages me profoundly. It's interesting Look at the beginning of our passage, verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Tell me about this, church. And their faith is proclaimed in all the world. They are a famous faith church. And how does the passage end? I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. What does that mean? You tell me about the day that Cross Point Coast doesn't need to hear the gospel. And you're going to have to be way better than the church whose faith is renowned in all the world. Friends, we need the preaching of the gospel today. We are, first of all, a people of thanksgiving. We are, because we are a people of grace who have received grace through faith that produces thanksgiving for this great gift. We belong together. It's true as a people of faith united in Christ, not a people who pretend or perform our way into an elite club, not a group of people who have a set of guidelines that defines us by our behaviors, but as a people who know that what unites us is that we are together recipients of grace. And our longing is that we would be encouraged together, receiving spiritual strengthening and mutual encouragement. And even as we long to pre- participate in the preaching of the gospel, we pray that there would be a great harvest that God would bring up, that he would raise up, that we could go out and reap it in our counting. We do pray, Lord, we need to hear the gospel. We need to be strengthened and mutually encouraged. But there are those who do not know Rescue. We have bring them into our fellowship? That we would have fellowship together in Christ. We have urgent news. Do you know it? And are you eager to share it? Heavenly Father, thank you for making your news known to us today. Thank you that we can actually know the truth. We know the ground of the gospel. I pray that you would confirm that to us today. Help us to see with new eyes the sweetness of what it is to be a people of faith. pray, Lord, that your spirit would be present, that you would work, that you would gift us, that we would walk according to your gifting to us. We would walk as a people of grace through faith. And that there would be a mutual encouragement in the body this morning, even among those that are guests with us today. We thank you. And Lord, we pray that there would be a fruitful harvest. Lord, that there would be others who were just like us. Lost and in need, who have come to depend on grace with us together in Christ. Thank you, Lord. Gather us, encourage us, and send us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.